Welcome to From the View Box with Hal and Chris. This is the podcast of the UMass Medical School Department of Radiology. My name is Hal Lowe from the Division of Emergency Radiology. And I am Christopher Cernelia from Musculoskeletal Imaging. Today, we welcome back uh, Dr. Lacey McIntosh, our local oncologic imaging expert at UMass. Welcome back, Lacey. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Um, Today, we'll be talking about um, what oncologists are looking for in the radiology report when they order oncologic imaging. Um, So, first and foremost, uh, a lot of of times I will see as an indication for a PET-CT or other oncologic imaging, um, the words uh, cancer staging or cancer restaging. Um, can Can you tell us what is the difference between staging and restaging? That's a great question to kind of start off with. Um, so usually staging is where the patient is presenting for the first time with their cancer. They often haven't had any treatment yet. It's just something's been identified, a biopsy has come back as, as being something malignant. And this is the first overall picture to know what the, what the tumor burden is and where the cancer has spread. And so the initial stage is really important because it guides the treatment um, as well as provides a prognosis for the patient. Um, you know, generally stage four cancers are not going to do as well as local confined stage one cancer. Um, so this is, this is generally the first look to know how much cancer there is and what structures it involves. Yeah, and we use AJCC 8th edition, um, usually TNM-based staging to kind of give the patient an overall initial assessment. Um, as for restaging, this, this is usually what's done um, after some treatment has occurred, whether it's a, a combination of surgery, uh, radiation, and chemotherapy, one or maybe all of those things. Um, <clears throat> and so those can be done for oncologists to figure out if their treatment's working, Um, If it's not working, how badly is this spiraling out of control? Does the disease all look the same? Do they need to get another biopsy of something? Um, So to kind of check in and see how how their treatment's working. Um, Another scenario is if the patient's been definitively treated and we're basically just following with surveillance. They're not actively on anything, but they're at high risk for recurrence, so we just keep checking in to see if they've had anything new pop up. Great, thank you for that uh, definition and description. Um, when you're doing um, a, a staging PCT, for instance, where are you looking at on the images, and what are you looking for on those images to um, uh, as an answer for, for the clinician? So, like I said, staging is really important because it dictates both the treatment and the prognosis uh, for that particular patient, um, and so you can do yourself a big favor by knowing where to look. And so the more you know about the different kinds of cancers, including the different kinds of histology, um, the better you are going to be able to detect uh, where cancer is. So one example of this is um, if you're working up a lung cancer. Um, We know that lung cancer really loves to go to the adrenal glands. So when you're reading a staging study, of course you're going to use your normal search pattern and look at everything there is um, on your images, but you want to give the adrenal glands a really, you know, thorough look because that's a place that uh, lung cancer likes to go and it certainly changes the stage from being a localized to a a metastatic picture. Um, 
Another example of this might be if you're doing uh, a rectal cancer CT or MRI. Um, understanding that the first place that these are usually going to go are to mesorectal lymph nodes. Um, so kind of know where you're looking. You want to follow up the superior rectal vein, which eventually becomes the IMV, um, which hooks up to the portal system and then, you know, goes into the liver. And so if you understand the way that cancer spreads, you're going to understand where to look. So you want to look for those lymph nodes. You want to follow those vessels all the way up. Um, and, and the reason for this is because you want to be accurate in where you're detecting disease. Um, but also understanding that this has an implication for the treatment. So the standard radiation port for rectal cancer is gonna be below kind of the L5-S1 level. If you find a lymph node that kind of looks suspicious that's at the L4 or L3 level, the radiation oncologist is really gonna to wanna to know that because it's easy for them to kind of expand their radiation port to include those abnormal nodes. So you want to look at places where you expect to see tumor um, to kind of find these these small findings that may change um, the specialized treatment for a patient. So not only understanding the primary site, but also looking at pathology. Um, one example of this is if you are looking at, for instance, a gastric cancer. If it has signet ring cell morphology, um, these really love to go to the peritoneum. Um, and so you need to very carefully scrutinize the peritoneal surfaces and the omentum to see if there's been any, um, any spread that way because they have a high propensity to do that. Um, so the more you know about the original site of the tumor and sometimes also the pathology, the more you can tailor your search pattern to look where you think it's going to go. Great. Those are some, those are some excellent teaching points uh, that uh, I, some, of the, some of that I didn't know. Um, what about restaging? So how are the waters muddied after you've treated the patient or uh, when the indication is restaging? What are, what are you expecting to look, what are you expecting to see and, and what are you looking for in a restaging study? So that's a great question and this is becoming very, very important in the era of precision medicine. Um, so I like to think about this if we're talking about restaging in terms of uh, reassessing a patient who's been on some sort of chemotherapy. Um, and so with the, with the new innovations of immune checkpoint inhibitors and targeted therapies, your response patterns are not necessarily all going to look the same. And so you need to really uh, investigate, look into the medical record to figure out what the patient's on, what type of treatment, and how long they've been on it, because you need to know what the baseline is. Um, and so something that I like to kind of use for determining um, what I'm looking for is looking at what, what treatment they've been on. Um, and so I think about these in three different categories. So there's traditional chemotherapy, which is, you know, full FOX, paclitaxel, um, you know, carboplatin, any of those traditional chemotherapy agents. These are cytotoxic. So these are going to kill cells. It doesn't really dif distinguish between um, cancer cells and normal cells. They typically target things that have rapid turnover, which is why patients on these um, drugs will lose hair. They can have a lot of diarrhea, mucosal cells, hair follicles. Those undergo um, rapid turnover, and so those are going to be particularly susceptible to these cytotoxic drugs. So if your patient is on what we consider a traditional chemotherapy agent, everything should get better. There's no circumstance where things can look worse before they get better. Everything should just get better. Um, 
So a second uh, kind of bucket that I put chemotherapy agents into is the targeted therapies. These are generally a little bit more cytostatic. So an example of this is Avastin or Bevacizumab, which is targeted to the VEGF um, receptor and is designed to kind of uh, shut down um, angiogenesis. And so generally when a patient is on Avastin, the type, the type of treatment response that you see is a little bit different. So if it's a pulmonary um, nodule, whether it's a MET or a primary, you might start to see cavitation of the nodule. So the size won't necessarily change, but the internal density um, may be what's kind of showing you that there's been a treatment response. Another example of this is with imatinib or Gleevec. Um, for, we use that for certain kinds of lymphomas and also for GIST. Um, and so say you have metastatic lesions to the liver from a GIST. Um, you are going to see a dramatic drop in the density of these lesions, but you're not going to see a huge change in the size. And so if you're just kind of using your normal recess criteria of size matters, then, you know, you're going to miss that there's been a response in those tumors if you're not actually looking at the density. Um, so that's the second bucket for kind of targeted things. You're not going to see a dramatic decrease in size, but you're going to see um, changes in the consistency or the density or in the enhancement of um, of the tumors. So then the third category is what um, is very exciting and, and new in cancer treatment and it's uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So what these do, um, they don't actually target tumor cells. What they do is they target an interaction that occurs between the tumor cells and the immune cells, which is able to normally shut down the immune system. And this is the PDL1, uh, PD1 pathway as well as CTLA4. Um, there's lots of these that they're looking at, but those are kind of the big ones. Um, some examples of these drugs are uh, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, divolumab, um, but you can kind of look up whatever the patient's on and figure out which bucket this falls into. So for the immune checkpoint inhibitors, you are enabling the body's immune system to actually fight the cancer. And so there can be this um, phenomenon called pseudoprogression, which usually occurs in the first 12 to 15 weeks is when we think about this. Um, and what can actually happen is that the tumor looks worse, or you can actually even see new sites of disease before it starts to respond. Um, so there's two mechanisms for which we think are responsible for pseudoprogression. One is that um, there's immune cell infiltration and edema that occurs prior to the actual T cell killing of the tumor. And the other is that there's a lag in the time in which the immune system takes to mount a response to the tumor. So it is actual tumor growth, but it's just occurring prior to the T cells kicking in and actually killing the cells. Um, so it's important to know when you're imaging, like are we before the 12 to 15 weeks, you got to really think about pseudoprogression if you're seeing things that look worse. Um, the, the other presentation where you can have that is actually blooming of micrometastases. So say you have micrometastatic disease to the lungs that you don't, you can't, Im, you can't appreciate on initial imaging, but then on your restaging you see all of these pulmonary nodules. You have to kind of include in your differential if you're in that first 12 to 15 weeks that this could be kind of a local reaction around these micrometastases and not actually new sites of disease. So restaging is really important to understand what kind of treatment they're on and how long they've been on it because things don't always look clear. It's not always that things get better. So do yourself a favor and look into the history so you can kind of give the best assessment of what's going on with the patient. Well, that's fantastic. Um, 
and thank goodness we have specialists like yourself to do this work for us because this is super important, obviously, for the patient and their uh, eventual management. Um, what about, uh, let's take a 10,000 foot uh, uh, look at the, uh, the, the study. What about the big picture? Oftentimes you'll see reports that say um, the patient's cancer is the same, the be better or worse. What are your thoughts on that, and um, what should we be looking out for uh, when we give a general interpretation? Yeah, so approaching um, cancer imaging can be really overwhelming because, you know, a lot of times there's just a ton of disease. You could spend all day describing the findings, every single lesion. So the, the more you understand about the treatment and kind of the clinical oncology side of things, you know, the easier it makes your job. And so generally what the oncologists want to know is, is my treatment working? Um, you know, particularly in terms of, of restaging disease. Um, they wanna know, does it look the same? Is it stable? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? And they kind of wanna know some quantification of that. How much better is it? How much worse is it? And there's a lot of clinical factors that go into that. Like, you know, has the patient had a recent treatment break because they're, you know, pancytopenic or, did they have uh, a bump in their creatinine that caused them to dose reduce? And so a little bit of growth may be acceptable based on kind of those other factors that we may not necessarily know about. Um, and then also they want to know about toxicities. You know, each of the chemotherapy drugs is associated with, um, you know, you can kind of have any, any kind of toxicity, but there are some ge like general specific ones that we think about too, like um, with the immune checkpoint inhibitors, these ramp up the immune system. And so you're likely to see immune related um, toxicities like thyroiditis, uh, hypophysitis, colitis, um, all of those things. And so you, you kind of need to have those on your, on your radar as well. Um, in terms of big picture, uh, you know, one thing that I remember struggling with when I was in training um, was patients that had like a ton of osseous metastases. So do you just kind of give a qualitative, are there like numerous, are there multiple, are there innumerable? Like how many of these do you describe and which ones do you measure? Um, because you could really spend all day looking at that. And so in talking with the oncologists here, the things that they wanna know about is they kind of wanna know um, a generalized uh, degree of, of tumor burden. Is it just a few? Is it a lot? Is, every, is all normal bone replaced by metastatic disease? And then things they wanna know about are anything that's an impending fracture or spinal cord involvement, anything that may need um, kind of focused treatment like radiation or um, potentially like uh, fixation from ortho. So you you don't want to go crazy in describing all of the lesions, but you want to describe the ones that are important that may, you know, have implications for local treatment. Speaking of uh, description uh, in your report, what, uh, what, what pearls and pitfalls do you have for us in terms of when you dictate these reports, what do you put in the report and what is important to either uh, uh, insert in the report or keep out of the report? So some things that I think are important when you're reading these are, um, I kind of touched on it before, is that if you're calling something that's getting better or getting worse, you want to you want to qualify that for them and quantify it. Um, so, you know, you don't have to describe every lesion, but pick a couple, give the current measurement, and give what it was on the last one. Um, 
also, if you know how long the patient's been on treatment, um, you know, you may need to look at more than one prior because there's certainly cases I've seen where we keep calling something stable, but then if you go back to the beginning of when they started their treatment, something is definitely growing by a millimeter or two each study, and it's actually getting worse, and we're missing it because we're not looking back far enough. So understand where your baseline is and give it a look because that's going to be the most accurate assessment of, of how the treatment is working. Um, some other things that I see are people really like to use the word progression. Um, and that's a word that kind of has a little bit more meaning than just worsening. When we look at the rhesus criteria, um, you know, we use bi-dimensional bi measurements to uh, track certain target lesions, and it has to meet a certain percentage of increase in size to, to actually be called progression. Sometimes you can have an increase in size, but it still falls under the stable disease um, because it doesn't quite meet the progression criteria. So I use words like increased tumor burden or improvement um, instead of progression or, or response. Um, you know, complete or partial response. Because if the patient's on a trial, they're going to be tracking these and they're going to be actually using the measurements to calculate percentage of change. Um, and so sometimes there's just like a little bit of growth in something and people call it progression. And when they have, a, when the oncologists have a report that says that, it kind of says you should be changing your treatment. But when there's a, just a little bit of growth, there may be some of those factors that we talked about before, like the patient's been on a treatment break or whatever. And so it, it's actually okay for them conti to continue on the same drug. What, what about um, two-dimensional versus three-dimensional measurements? I, I've seen uh, different uh, uh, metastatic lesions and primary cancer lesions uh, measured two-dimensionally and three-dimensionally. How do you do it? And is there a difference? And when should we do one, one versus the other? That's a great question. Um, so if you want to be a purist, then yes, three-dimensional or volumetric me uh, measurements are kind of the most accurate way to assess a tumor volume. Um, but practically speaking, with all the studies that we read, it's, it's not really practical to do that in every patient. And also, if you look at um, the response criteria with, for instance, rhesus, it's bidimensional, bi um, in some cases, unidimensional um, measurements. So I always give measurements in, in two planes, especially if it's a, a trial patient that we're going to be following over. And the, the convention is really to do it on the axial imaging. Sometimes your longest dimension of the tumor is not in the axial plane. It may be a very tall lesion that the craniocaudal um, dimension is kind of the largest. And so that is important to provide that information in terms of T-staging because T-staging is usually dependent on the, the maximum dimension of the tumor. Um, but, you know, I, I would say as a general rule, I always provide two, uh, two dimensions. It kind of gives more information than one. I know that the teaching is that the short axis of lymph nodes is kind of the important one, but you really get a better sense of how big something is and how it's changing when you have two dimensions. So I always give at least two and sometimes three if, if you know, the largest measurement is not on the axial plane. Well. Thank you, Lacey, uh, so much for uh, joining us for these two episodes. We certainly learned a great deal about um, functional imaging, oncologic imaging, and uh, your approach to the radiology report for these oncologic uh, studies that we read, uh, PET-CT in particular. Um, are there, as always, uh, we will attach references um, that uh, listeners can uh, 
feel free to peruse at their leisure to learn more about this topic. Do you have any uh, uh, references or any tools that you use uh, on a daily basis to help you w interpreting these studies? Yeah, I do. I actually have a very helpful one. It's um, the NCI Drug Dictionary. Um, you can just Google it, but I keep that up in my background all the time because there are so many drugs out there, it's really impossible to kind of memorize all of them. But if you can figure out which category it falls into, then you kind of know what to expect in terms of your imaging response pattern. Um, so you can just kind of type it in there and it has like a very short description of what the drug does. And, and so that is very helpful for characterizing because it's impossible to memorize all of the drugs out there. And especially there's new ones coming out and being approved all the time. So it's, it's hard to keep up with, but, um, you know, it's an important thing to, to make a, a distinguishment about what kind of class of drugs they're on. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Lacey. And, uh, um, for your time and we hope to have you back for a future uh, podcast. Thanks. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting From the Viewbox. We've attached additional reading materials to the episode notes as provided by our guest. And please visit us at www.umassmed.edu backslash radiology. Thank you to our colleagues Charlene Barron, Tom Delaney, and Dan Ramsaran for their technical assistance. See you next time.